So I'll be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Carissa. Good morning. Uh, If it's your first time joining us, um, we're doing a little mini-series right now on the character of Christ, and this all is included in our year of biblical literacy, which... I say this every week, so you guys are probably like, you could probably say it better than I can, which is we are reading through the Bible together to know firsthand what the Bible says and to be shaped by it, right? So uh, last week we started this uh, short series and we talked about Jesus the rabbi. We talked about how this is probably a, um, you know, maybe a hat or an identity that we don't often give to Jesus. We talk about him in many ways, but we don't talk about him as a teacher or, as he was in those days, a rabbi. And we talked about that with a rabbi, it wasn't just that he was a teacher that you would, you know, kind of pull from, you know, you'd pull from a few rabbis, you know, kind of had a few of your favorites, as we often do. You know, we have a few of our favorite commentators. We have a few of our kind of go-to people to help us interpret the Bible. It wasn't like that in those days. You had one rabbi. And if your rabbi asked you to be his disciple, it meant that you would be with your rabbi, that you would become like your rabbi, and then that you would do what your rabbi did. And we talked about how Jesus being the teacher means then that we are disciples of Jesus the rabbi. And this is our call, to follow Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. Now, we're continuing to look at Jesus because I think that there are maybe aspects of Jesus' character and of his person that we just kind of miss as the church. Uh, we just kind of gloss over. I've heard this story. I've, I've, we, you know, I've, I've learned this before. So we give many titles to Jesus of Nazareth, right? Son of God, Savior, Redeemer, Messiah, or the Christ. It is a well-known fact of history though, that Jesus was a healer or a miracle worker. You can find this actually in historical records, uh, Josephus included, that Jesus was known to uh, work signs and wonders, miracles. Uh, One of my favorite passages about Jesus comes from the lips of Peter in Acts 10. I just love the way he describes him. He says in Acts 10, 37, 38, speaking to the household of Cornelius, these are going to be the first Gentiles who become part of the family of God. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, 
beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is a a very common trait of Jesus that we find all throughout the Gospels. I think two things. We find people move, excuse me, we find Jesus constantly moving toward suffering. Constantly moving toward suffering. There's times when the disciples know that Jesus is tired. There's times where they want to protect him. And Jesus, he will interrupt them and say, no, no, this is why I came. Remember that time where the little children want to come to Jesus, and what does he do? He says, don't forbid them. Don't, don't refuse these children. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus was constantly moving towards people that needed him. He was someone who was compassionate towards suffering. Remember that passage where it says that Jesus looks out on the multitude, and he was moved with compassion because he saw them, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think about how we often look at a multitude. Um, uh, many of us, you know, uh, uh, Grace and I, we love going down to San Francisco. And I know that many of you do not share that affinity for San Francisco. Uh, because for some of you, you see crowds and you're like, ah, like people, germs, drama, all this stuff. But when Jesus looks at people, what he sees is he sees people that need to be cared for, people that need to be loved, people that need to be led, people that need to be healed. And I think that's very important as we talk about Jesus the healer, that we know that it was out of Jesus' compassionate heart, out of his mercy, that he moved toward suffering. Now, leading up to the story that we just read, Mark um, 2, 1 through 12, um, This is what has been happening. Jesus has just been moving towards suffering, healing many. Listen to this. Uh, It begins this way, though. Mark 1, 14, after John was arrested. So this is after Jesus' baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, his time in solitude. It says, now John was arrested, and Jesus came into Galilee. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn and believe in the gospel. And then it says, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Now that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Going down Mark 1, 40 through 45, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you offer your cleansing for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But the man went out and began to talk freely about his healing and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Remember that. Jesus can't come to town now. Now, Jesus' miracles so far in Mark's gospel consist of the sick being made well, those oppressed by demons being set free, those ceremonially unclean or dirty being made clean, and those who are lame are made whole. Now, let's talk for a second just about miracles, because I think all of this is is put together by Mark on purpose. We often refer to the healing works of Jesus as miracles, wonders. Um, But I love that in John's gospel, John calls them signs. Now, of course, this is part of the purpose of John's writing. He has seven signs and seven statements about Jesus. But the fact that John calls them signs, I think we, we sometimes miss that because we look at the miraculous act itself rather than seeing it as a sign pointing away from itself to something else. Remember, I, I just read Jesus in Mark 1.14. He begins the ministry with a proclamation, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and then Mark records these miracles of healing and restoration directly following this proclamation. Now, have you ever noticed that in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or whether it's the apostles or just different people in the early church, um, when miracles are done, it's never about power for the sake of power. Jesus and the apostles aren't doing tricks to attract a crowd. They aren't showmen, right? Um, I used to do a lot of missionary outreach. Um, That's what we called it anyway. And what we would do is I would play music and go with a group of, you know, street evangelists. And we would go to, you know, Eastern Europe or Russia or something like that. And we would play music. And the whole point of playing music where we put on a skit, the whole point was to attract the crowd, to bring them in, so then we could tell them about the gospel. That is not why Jesus and the apostles did signs and wonders. It's not what was going on. It wasn't like that, just like this hook. Jesus and the apostles aren't doing tricks. They aren't showmen attracting a crowd. The miracles always relieve suffering. Because they are signs, signs pointing to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is here, that it is present in the person of Jesus. They are signs pointing to the new creation that God had promised long before through the prophets to bring upon the world. He would remove the effects of sin. He would remove the effects of brokenness, that God would remove the decay and breakdown and death that was in the world. And he would usher in a new creation, a healed world and healed bodies. We, we often talk about miracles. Uh, C.S. Lewis even, in fact, wrote a book on miracles because living in or living post-enlightenment, many are skeptical about miracles because they defy science, because they defy the natural order, right? That's the way we often talk about them. But if you think about the, the story of the Bible, we only talk about miracles being supernatural because we are living in a world under sin. 
Miracles like sight to the blind, the dead being raised, are, if you think about it, the most natural thing in the world. They are not the suspension of the natural order, but a restoration of God's order. The restoration of the original creation. God did not make a world with sin, with cancer, with blindness, with lameness, with suffering and death. I love what Jürgen Moltmann says in his book, The Way of Jesus Christ. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and who are sick. The lordship or the kingship of God to which the healings witness, remember the kingdom of God, restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So the point being, the miraculous works of Jesus are signs pointing to the kingdom of God and marking Jesus off as the king and administrator of that kingdom. So now let's talk about this particular episode with Jesus. In this episode, Mark 2, 1 through 12, Jesus' popularity has reached new heights. Right, News of his healing power has spread all around. So much so, remember the story we just read, He is no longer able to enter the villages or synagogues because of the massive crowds that flock to him. And it's upon such an occasion that Jesus is at Peter's house, uh, or Mark's gospel says he's at home. So apparently Jesus lived with Peter. Um, And it's upon such an occasion, right, that so many gathered to hear him because they hear Jesus is in the house. They hear that Jesus has come back to Capernaum. And it sounds like it's secretive that Jesus kind of was getting some rest, but the people hear him and they begin to flock to the house. And the crowd is so large that comes to hear him teach. The house is filled that no one can even get to Jesus. It's in this setting Jesus is going to reveal or unveil something about the nature of his person and his mission. He's going to reveal something deeper about his healing power. Now, what happens is four friends bring their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus. But they can't even get near the door because, as we said, the crowd is so massive and crowding even around the house just to hear Jesus. So what they do in the act of vandalism, they climb onto the roof and start dismantling it uh, in order to lower their friend down to Jesus. Now, if you um, know anything about uh, Jewish history and the way that houses were built back then, you would have stone walls because um, the stone is uh, plenteous in the region of Galilee. It's actually all volcanic rock. But the roofs would be beams, and then on top of that, you would actually put dirt, and people would have like living, like a living roof, basically, you know, with grass growing on and this kind of stuff. And that was a way that the heat would actually escape from these houses. Anyway, that doesn't matter. But you can understand through this, it would be easy to dismantle a roof. All you would have to do is dig through the dirt, and then you would be able to remove the beams and actually be able to lower somebody down. Now, as this man is being lowered, it says Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his friends. Um, So what does that mean to see their faith? They are so confident in Jesus' power to heal their friend, they have climbed onto the roof, dragged their lame friend up there with them, dismantled the roof, and figured out a way to lower him into the presence of Jesus. A long but powerful description of what faith is. 
Oh, faith. Oh, I just believe. Oh, faith. Oh, yeah, you know, I know, I know. That's faith. I'm going to haul my lame friend up on this roof. I'm going to work tirelessly to dig this thing out. I'm going to find some way to lower him down without killing him just so he can get to Jesus because Jesus, Jesus can heal him. I want us to think about that pursuit of Jesus, to think about what it takes to get to Jesus, that they will not be deterred, that there will be no obstacle to them to get to Jesus, the healer. That's faith. Jesus, as I said, sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. I want us to picture this for a moment. Okay, so Jesus is in the house. Everyone is crowded in there. People are all around the house. And who knows what, you know, a sower went out to sow, maybe is what Jesus is teaching. And as he sowed, and then all of a sudden, just like dirt, and, and things just start falling from the roof. And maybe, maybe before you, doom, 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 like they hear this on the roof, stuff starts falling down. And all of a sudden, like, it's kind of distracting, right? The roof is being dismantled, and all of a sudden, this man's being lowered down. And maybe then people begin to realize, oh, wow, that, wow, like, look at these guys, look at their faith, look what's happening here. And it's just like this incredible moment where this man is being lowered. And, you know, just, I think, like, if you were to have a cartoon of it or a movie of it, you know, it would have that, the angelic voices, ah, you know, like the Shekinah, as he's being lowered, like, here's this powerful moment of coming to Jesus. This man is going to be healed. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And it's like, yeah, Arr! you know, like, record stops. Like, what? You know, angels stop singing. Shekinah's gone. And everyone in the room is like, say what? Like, wait a second, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's not why we're here. Jesus, you seem to be missing something glaringly obvious. This man is paralyzed. This is why he is, we have come to you. This is why we've dismantled this roof. He can go to the temple and take care of sin. But this story reveals that Jesus knows something that the crowd does not know. Maybe something that we don't know at this time, that suffering isn't our biggest problem. You could have all of your problems, all of your suffering healed today, and guess what? It isn't what you are looking for ultimately. It isn't really what we need. The Bible speaks continuously that our biggest issues are not physical. It's not our environment. It's not even just my broken body and the the illness that I have. It isn't the people around me necessarily that is the problem. The physical is just the glaring manifestation of a deeper problem. What do I mean by that? Because that sounds pretty insensitive, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean this. Someone who is paralyzed, they want to walk again. Someone who has lost their sight desires to see, or someone who's never had their sight desires to see. And so let's say that that miracle takes place. Let's say that they're healed. Let's say, I mean, th- there's stories, right, of people who have been paralyzed, and the doctors have told them, you know, like, you'll never walk again. And, you know, wonder of all wonders through uh, physical therapy and, you know, their own willpower, they walk again. But it only takes a short amount of time, and that person is, again, just as miserable as everyone else. 
right? The physical healing that took place has not taken care necessarily of the human problem that we all experience, which is misery, which is hopelessness. This person is, you know, not paralyzed anymore, not blind anymore, but they're just as miserable and hopeless and lost as the the rest of the human race. Even in our own life, sometimes we act as though physical healing, physical filling is all that we need or is what we really need. If I only had this, God, if you would only do this in my life, all my problems would be solved. I would be happy. I would be whole. Do you ever look at the thing that you are longing for, whether it's healing Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your family, it's a relationship, it's money. It's the career that you have not been able to, you know, get at and ask, are the people that have what I want any more happy than I am? Are they any more peaceful than I am? And I think that all of that shows, it's not wrong to want those things, right? To want a healthy marriage. It's not wrong to want a peaceful house. It's not wrong to want a great career. But that is not our problem. Our problems are deeper than that. And these healings that we long for, that we chase after, that we spend so much time on, will not truly make us whole. You and I, we need a deeper healing. And Jesus' words and his work here in this miracle point to that. Jesus' work of healing our bodies, our sickness and disease is real, truly. But the work Jesus wants to do is deeper still. Jesus wants to heal our lives at the very root and core of our being. Jesus' words to this paralytic give evidence just something that we don't like to talk about, that our culture doesn't like to talk about, but they give evidence to the reality of sin. And sin, the Bible tells us, has brought separation from our creator and from our original intent, what we were made for, who we were made for. We were made for God. We were made for his presence. We were made for a relationship with him. But sin has broken all that. And scripture shows us in all these different ways how sin has brought a breakdown of the natural order. Whether physical infirmity, disease, death, chaos, war in the world, Really, all these occur because we are not under the reign of God in the way that the creation was meant to be. Disease, sickness, and death, as I mentioned a moment ago, were not a part of God's original good creation, but came about when human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. Mankind, in doing this, severed itself from the life that is in God, and we have been suffering the consequences of this ever since. Now, maybe you think, Jesus, heal my body. That would be great. Heal my life. Jesus, heal the world. That's what's wrong. And Jesus, I think, is saying to the crowd, maybe even saying to us, yes, I intend to do all of that, but you are also part of the problem. And that's really, it seems really insensitive when we are suffering. Jesus, how dare you? I have been sinned against. I have been hurt. 
And Jesus would say, yes, I know that you have been hurt, and I can see the marks of that. I can see the pain and the burdens that you're bearing, but you need to know that even if I took that away, there is still something deeper that is killing you. There is still something deeper that is poisoning you. That the problem is actually with us. Because the healing work that our bodies and souls need is to be brought back to God. And that can only come through the forgiveness of sin. That can only come through the removal of sin. Now, personally, and I know maybe you would disagree with me, personally, I think that many churches talk too much about sin. Whoa. <laughs> really, Pastor? Yes, too much about sin to the neglect of other aspects of God's salvation and redemption. Remember, we talked about this the other week. What is the gospel? And sometimes we start with sin. But the gospel doesn't start there, you know. The gospel starts with the fact that God created us, and God created us for him, and God created us in harmony with him, and to live in this paradise, and to um, partner with God in, in this work of cultivating life and flourishing. It starts there. And sometimes we, we, we jump so quickly to say, oh, you're a sinner, that's the problem, right? And, and we, we have people that are suffering, we have people that are hurting, and we jump immediately to, well, you need to have your sins forgiven you. It's like, dude, you insensitive jerk. <laughs> like, can you not see that I am paralyzed, right? Just like this scenario that Jesus is in. So I'll say this, forgiveness of sins, salvation is not less than the forgiveness of sins, but it is so much more. And in order to experience God's salvation, which is a restoration, a new creation, redemption, salvation, however you want to word it, in order to experience the reign of God, we must have our sins forgiven us. And because here is the truth, each one of us are sinned against sinners. That is what we are. Because wouldn't it be great that if we were like Jesus, we could receive all of the wrong done to us and we would never return that injustice. But none of us have lived that way. And even if we, if we are living that way now, praise the Lord, we're growing in maturity. But it took a, it, it's taking some to get there. And we still don't always do it perfect, right? We're sinned against sinners, Whatever has been done to us, however we have been sinned against, we have all lived in such a way as to ensue debt to God. That's actually how the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, uh, talks about sin. It's debt. We owe a debt to God. We'll talk about that in a second. But remember Jesus, he says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Remember when Jesus tells a story about the uh, unforgiving servant, he says to the man, he forgives him a debt. And then the man goes out and seeks, you know, to get back what someone else owes him. And he says, I forgave you an enormous debt. What is wrong with you? It's debt that we owe to God. What do I mean by that? Well, God created us for himself. I said this a moment ago, for relationship, to be his image bearers, to model his right way of living, or as Old Testament calls it, righteousness and self-giving love into the world. All of this creates an atmosphere of shalom, of peace, 
But instead, and I know that this is vulgar, it's literally like we walked into God's house and we took a dump on God's carpet. And then we smeared it on the walls. We flipped the tables over. We broke everything. We smashed this setting of shalom. What do we owe to God then? Debt. Debt. And we all do this, right? We all tear at the fabric or shoot holes in the fabric of shalom, of creation, of order. We bring chaos into it. All human beings have lived selfishly. We have not loved and honored God as God. We have not loved our family as ourself. We have not loved our spouse as ourself. We have not loved our children as ourself. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We have not loved our enemy. And selfishness is truly at the root of all sin. We prefer ourselves before God. We prefer ourselves before others. And sin and selfishness make the world a miserable place. They blow holes in God's shalom, in God's creation. So so when we talk about all of us being sinners, it is in the sense that we have all added to the chaos and destruction in the world around us. Maybe you were there. You were the vandal at God's house, right? I, I just, like... I just popped a can and just poured some Fanta on the floor. I mean, I didn't, do, I didn't you know, take a dump on the floor. I didn't, like, flip table. I didn't smash the wall. I didn't do this. But we've all done something. We've all done a certain amount. Yes, some people have racked out more debt to God, right? Like, that's the man that owes his master millions of dollars, and some of us owe less. But we all owe debt to God. We have all added to the chaos and destruction in the world around us. And all of this sin is ultimately against God because he created us. He created the world that we're living in. He created life, relationships, and we aren't honoring that creation. We aren't honoring that order. And that pollutes and destroys God's good order. And as I said, we owe a debt to God. Now, when Jesus says to this man and even to us that he forgives our sin, Yes, those are specific sins, but also in a more general way that we're talking, he says, I forgive you for punching holes in my walls. I forgive you for polluting my shalom and my creation. I forgive you for lighting my house on fire and vandalizing my, my, my dwelling place. He is forgiving that. He is forgiving the inner twistedness and rebellion that resides in each of our hearts. So Jesus, with his words to this man who is paralyzed, who does have physical infirmity, Jesus is telling us that he has come to do something about the root of evil, the root of pain and misery in the world. Jesus has come to deal with sin. Now we're told specifically, when Jesus utters these words, the religious leaders are appalled. So if the crowd says, like, a wait, what, you know, kind of moment, the religious leaders have that too. Wait, what? Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes and the religious leaders, right, this is their take on this. And they don't say anything, but this is what they're thinking. They're angry. They are zealous for God, for his glory. How dare Jesus 
utter these words. And it says, Jesus knowing their thoughts, which is super interesting. It says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And it says, and he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So all were amazed and glorified God and said, we never saw anything like this. Do you ever wonder why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? This actually is Jesus' most common or favorite self-identifier in the Gospels. He rarely calls himself the Son of God or anything else. There's a few times, you know, with the woman at the well, he reveals himself like, yeah, I'm the Messiah, like, basically, you know. He tells a few people that, but otherwise, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if we go back to Daniel 7, there is this scene where the Ancient of Days, uh, and this is the way the Hebrew, uh, the um, Old Hebrew scribes and even Jews today would think of this. In this scene, you have the old man God, and then you have a young man God or a son of man God. And it's like, there are two Yahwehs. There are two powers in the heavens. And it's this weird thing that even the Jews are like, yeah, it's there. It's in the Old Testament, okay? So this is a picture that you have. You have the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is seated on his throne, and heavenly beings are all around him. And in this scene, he has just administered judgment over the wicked rulers of the world. Now, we don't know if that is the power behind the powers or if that is the, the um, physical persons themselves. But then it says... Immediately following that, I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel writing, we think, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, all should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is here identifying himself with God's king. You know, sometimes we, we just kind of do this like triple, double backflip like over all the Bible and we're just like, Jesus is God. And you know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't really come out and say those words. And Jesus really introduces himself to us by he's doing all the works of Yahweh. He's identifying with the, the, the storyline of the Bible. And we just disregard all of that where Jesus is God. I would say, yes, he is God, absolutely. But we're missing the story and we're missing the power behind Jesus' words. Jesus is the son of man. And what that means in this context is he is the human being who rules over the kingdom of God. Now, just think for a minute about Adam. Think about Eve. Think about God's intention with them. What was it? That, a, that human beings would rule the world, right? For God. They would rule over it. With God, with his power behind them, they would represent God. They would rule over the world in shalom. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. He's the human being that God gives power and dominion and authority over to, and he rules God's kingdom forever and ever. 
the kingdom of flourishing, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of justice, the kingdom of goodness. And what Jesus is claiming, I love this, here in this passage is, as the king, as the son of man, he has authority over God's kingdom to forgive sin. He has authority to offer admittance into the kingdom of God. Who says who's in and who's out of a kingdom? The king. That's the idea. When Jesus is going around doing miracles, when he says the kingdom of God is brought near you, he's saying it as the king. Now, Jesus says he has authority to forgive sin, to pardon, to offer admittance in the into God's kingdom, but Jesus doesn't play out here how all this is possible. Does God just sweep sin under the rug? I mean, God is big enough, and sometimes we we wonder that. Like, why can't God just fix everything? Why didn't God just make everything right? Why didn't God just end all the evil in the world and just make things right? And the problem is, kind of going back to what we said earlier, we don't actually know ourselves well enough. We don't actually know what is really wrong with the world well enough because we think evil is out there and God just needs to take care of it. The fact is evil is in here, and God is going to take care of it. So all of this, how, of how Jesus is going to forgive sin, it comes out later. There's a later, actually quite a few more Son of Man passages in the book of Mark. Mark 8, 31, it's one of the times that Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this figure who is brought to the Ancient of Days, this figure who is given the kingdom of God to rule over it forever and ever and ever will suffer many things. The king will be rejected. The chief priests, the ones who were making sacrifice to this king, preparing the way for the king, the teachers who were making way for the king, will turn on the king. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So take Daniel 7, take Mark 2, 112, Mark 8, 31, put them all together, right? The idea here is Yahweh appoints the Son of Man to rule over the nations forever and ever, but Jesus is saying that this Son of Man must first be rejected, suffer, die, and rise again. And in fact, Mark's Gospel, Jesus says this three times, almost back to back. So what is this about, right? Well, this is what it's about. Before God's kingdom can truly be established, God is king, creation restored, humanity brought back into the presence and purposes of God, sin, evil, and death must be overcome. It must be destroyed. And what Jesus will do there on the cross, we know this, is that Jesus will gather all of the sin. I I was just reading, maybe it was in Yobel, I can't remember, But remember, he says to the nation of Israel, he says that on this generation will come all the guilt from Abel to Zechariah. It will be accounted of this generation. Many commentators have thought is what Jesus is saying in that moment. He is saying, I am paying for the sin since the foundation of the world. I am paying for the bloodshed from Abel, the first one in the story of God to be murdered, all the way to Zechariah, the last one in the Hebrew storyline, to be killed. Jesus is saying that that is what he has come for. 
Jesus there on the cross will gather all the sin of the world upon him, and we know this, that he will be crushed, as Isaiah says. He will be wounded for our transgression, and by his stripes, his beatings, we will be healed. We will be healed. All the evil, sin, rebellion, beginning with Adam and stretching all the way into today, will be dealt with there on the cross in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And so what Jesus, the Son of Man, comes to do in a sense is to remove the barrier of sin that blocks us from the kingdom of God. Why doesn't God just fix everything, just make everything new right now? Because, as I've said many times before, no one would live to tell the tale. So he comes to deal with sin, and as the scripture says, he will return again to set up the kingdom of God. Peter, in his first epistle, he says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I love this. That we might die to sin, that it might not live or have its work or its way with us anymore, and we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is Peter's exposition of Isaiah 53, by the way. For you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There there it is. Jesus removes the barrier so we can return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So we can come home to God, so we can be a part of his kingdom. And so here is what Jesus is doing here in Mark 2, 1 through 12. He is pointing forward the same healing power that God is going to bring to the whole earth at the end of time can be brought into our life presently, today. The removal of guilt and shame, the cleansing of our conscience, the evil that we have done, the pollution that we have added to God's world, the selfishness that we have brought into the world, the pain and suffering that we have brought to bear upon others, that can be forgiven. That weight, that burden can be removed from our lives, and we can experience healing, true healing, so that when we, you know, so that like that poison that resides in us, even out of bitterness, can, it doesn't spill over on others. Have you ever done that before? If you, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You've got all this stuff going on in your life, frustrations, all this, and then your kid comes in and they want just one thing, right? You're just like, no, oh! like just freak out. Like just all, it all comes out on somebody who does not deserve it, Right? Jesus, I believe, is offering us a healing of that so that we no longer pollute the world with sin. He wants to heal that deep wound within us. He wants to bear our burdens. He wants to heal us by his stripes. And that healing can take place today. It really can. Through Jesus, he bore our sin. He bore the root of all evil in his body on the cross. Now, in closing... I think we just need to talk about this for a minute. Sinned against sinners. Because though Jesus, or through Jesus rather, not only can we have our sins forgiven us, but we can also have the sin done to us forgiven. Some of you have been sinned against by people who are no longer living. 
where's closure for you? Where's reconciliation? How can you get it? You can only get it through the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to that. And this is the truth of Scripture that Jesus forgives my sins, but he also forgives this, the debts that people owe to me, the sins that have been done to me. He forgives that. He offers to forgive that. Because again, if, if that is not dealt with, that is like poison and it will eat us alive and it will destroy those around us that we love. It will keep us from being vulnerable, from being open, from being transparent the way that God intends us to be with one another. We're shielded, we're guarded. You know, Grace and I, we, we often pray this and talk about this because in ministries, in, in ministries, in church ministry and leadership, you can experience a lot of hurt. From people. You, you deal with people. People are drama. People are sinners. People are sinned against sinners. Do I need to go on? No. And something we often pray because we know the tendency to build walls, to protect ourselves, to get bitter. We pray this, God, would you make our skin thicker? Would you make our hearts softer? That can only happen. That can only happen through being with Jesus by becoming like Jesus, by doing what Jesus did, right? It can only come through applying the forgiveness of Jesus to those sins that are done to us. So Jesus doesn't just pay for the sin that we have committed, but also the sin done to us. He brings healing to those who have been victimized by sin. He offers that to us, true healing. And I, and I would say this, and through applying the forgiveness of Jesus to our own lives, he makes us into a forgiving people. And that's huge in this world. To make us into a forgiving people. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount talks about, right? In a myriad of ways, loving our enemies, forgiving sin, not repaying evil for evil. Desmond Tutu in his book, The Tutu, what a name, poor guy. Uh, in his book, the, the Book of Forgiving, sorry, I shouldn't even. He says, forgiveness is truly the grace by which we enable another person to get up and to get up with dignity. To begin anew, to not forgive leads to bitterness and hatred. Like self-hatred and self-contempt, hatred of others gnaws away at our vitals. Whether hatred is projected out or stuffed in, it is always corrosive to the human spirit. Desmond Tutu was one of the administrators of the taking down of apartheid and the reparations that happened in South Africa. He is an Anglican Christian. He knows firsthand about bitterness, systemic racism, and the healing of Jesus Christ. So as we close, and I already said that, but maybe today you desperately feel your need for forgiveness. You feel that. You feel your sin and your guilt and shame. It has a hold on you. So Jesus offers you freedom from that sin. But it's not freedom. We know this. We're, we're, we're discussing this in our men's group. We think of freedom as freedom to live for ourselves. No, freedom from sin to live under God, to live under his rule, to live under his kingly reign, to be shepherded by him. And then maybe you're the, you're the other person. Maybe you feel as though you need Jesus, Jesus to work forgiveness in your heart towards someone who has wronged you. I mean, can we, can we pray this? Jesus, forgive them. 
because right now I cannot. I mean, I think about that like that's the Lord help. I believe help my unbelief. Like I'm, I'm not there. I want to be there. Lord, forgive them. Help me forgive them. Your power working through me to forgive them. Jesus offers us that healing as well this morning. So I want to pray as we close a prayer just over us, <clears throat> and then we will just offer ourselves to the Lord in worship, offer ourselves to the Lord, come to his table through communion, and then we'll close out our service. But let's pray together. So Jesus, we pray that you would teach us. Great physician, teach us what it means cathartically practically that by your wounds we are healed. Lord, we don't want to just throw out spiritual platitudes. We want to walk in the reality of salvation, of redemption, of restoration. We want to be redemptive participants in this world with you. And we know, Lord, that that starts with us in our own hearts. It starts with recognizing we are Sinned against sinners, but we are sinners. We have sinned against, Lord, and you freely forgive us by your beatings, by your marred face, by your pierced hands, by your bleeding brow, we are healed, Lord Jesus. The cost was great. What is Harder to say, it is harder to say, son, your sins are forgiven you because that was the path of the cross. Lord Jesus, we recognize that this morning. You have forgiven us an infinite debt that we owe. Wash over us, we we pray. Set us free from from the sin, from the guilt, from the shame, from those burdens. Lord, bring us under your gracious rule. Teach us, O Lord, then to forgive as you forgive. Help us to take those wrongs that have been done to us to the cross, to nail them there, to see that bloody, tortured figure has paid in full what is owed to us. Help us to see you, Lord, in the face of our oppressor, your suffering. And so heal us, O Lord, down to the core of our being. Set us free from the sin that has held us. Set us free from the sins that have been done to us and them having power over us. Wounded healer, heal us by your wounds.